All right, well, if you have a copy of the confession tonight, you can go ahead and take that and turn to chapter 28. And we are looking at paragraph 2. Uh, we'll also be looking tonight at Matthew 28, 19 and Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So we are studying through our confession of faith on Wednesday evenings. And so our confession, of course, is our, also our doctrinal statement. It is our articles of faith. It is our statement of faith. Uh, it is based upon, of course, the Scriptures. So we, of course, the Scriptures are our final authority. Uh, but we certainly believe that the Baptist Confession of Faith summarizes very well uh, what we believe the Bible teaches. So we have been looking at chapter 28 that deals with baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, now this is a combined chapter that is, serves as an introduction to chapter 29, which deals with baptism, uh, and then chapter 30, which deals with the Lord's Supper. So as we arrive at paragraph 2, uh, here is what paragraph 2 says. These holy appointments are to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called according to the commission of Christ. Now you'll notice that the two verses that are cited there are Matthew 28, 19 and 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, Matthew 28, 19 we are probably most familiar with because that is part of what is known as the Great Commission as the Lord sent the disciples out and as they were to go in to preach and teach the gospel and teach all nations, mentioning baptizing them. And then 1 Corinthians 4 is an interesting uh, verse that is cited uh, because it is a verse that talks about Paul making mention of being stewards of the mysteries of God. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that um, as we get into um, our study tonight. So as we've been looking at this tonight, we want to consider um, the administration of the ordinances. Um, who is rightful or who has the uh, scriptural uh, ability, opportunity, uh, qualification, commandment, we might say, to administer the two ordinances God has left for the church to observe. Uh, that is the Lord's Supper and baptism. So when the confession begins to deal specifically with the ordinance of baptism, which we'll see in uh, chapter 29, it first of all says that baptism is a New Testament ordinance that finds its origin in the will of Jesus Christ. Um, so we'll see that how the ordinance of baptism was not something that uh, obviously was being observed in the Old Testament, but rather it was an ordinance that was given by the will of Christ. Um, and it reminds us again of, of what is said in chapter 29, paragraph 1. And here's what it says. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church until the end of the world. So chapter 28, paragraph 1, we've been dealing with that, that this is a sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, and he is the one who is the only lawgiver. Um, now, it does seem that it, it would be an obvious statement, but we don't want to be... Um, 
so aloof to this situation to think that everybody knows uh, that the ordinance of baptism um, was not practiced during the Old Testament times. There's not a time when we see specifically baptism, uh, but it is significant for us to understand that we need to know a correct uh, interpretation of what the Bible says about uh, baptism and, of course, what it says about the Lord's Supper. So it's in the New Testament we see the command of baptism being described. We see the command of baptism being explained. So the question then becomes, what paragraph 2 tells us, is that these holy appointments or these ordinances are to be administered. All right, so administered, we think about an administration, we think about the, the people who are to carry out uh, these particular ordinances. So we have to ask ourselves the question, um, who are those who should be uh, carrying out these ordinances? And so as we see in paragraph two, um, we see that they are to be carried out by those who are qualified and thereunto called. Uh, now, uh, by way of a review, uh, during our study, we have talked about the nature of these ordinances. Paragraph 1 has told us about the nature of them, um, the institution of them, um, the duration. We looked at last week, how long are these to continue? They're to continue until the end of the age, the end of the world. So we're dealing now with this aspect of the administration of them. Um, so who has the authority? Um, who has the authority to baptize, to baptize Christians? Um, who, has, who is to preside over it? Who is responsible to be sure that it is carried out properly? Um, these are the questions that are being asked. Um, who's to carry out the ordinance of the Lord's Supper? Who is to observe to lead it? The response of the confession to these questions is very interesting because you'll see that it, it doesn't give us a definition of who the qualified and who the called are. Uh, the, and I'll, we'll explain this in a minute why I believe the confession writers were a little bit vague with this, but it's left with us only to see the two passages they cited, Matthew 28, 19 and 1 Corinthians 4, 1. So, the confession speaks of people who are qualified, people who are called, but it stops short of giving us any further definition of who is, the de who is defined as qualified and called. Now, it's a bit different. Remember, we, the, the Baptist Confession of Faith um, was not a standalone document that was just created um, on its own. It was taken, much of its language was taken from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, the Baptist Confession of Faith in this particular paragraph only talks about the qualified and the called. But specifically, uh, the Westminster Confession actually says their wording is different, that the ordinances must be administered by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. So they introduce a word that the confession right of the Baptist confession did not use. They use the word ordained and they use the word lawfully. Now that does go to partly uh, what the primarily those who who adhere to the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's not a campaign is with a, a perfect broad brush that says this is everything, but primarily it is as used primarily by Presbyterians who do believe that the only people qualified are pe and ordained are people who have been um, 
academically and seminary trained. In other words, they have to go through a certain process to be qualified to actually lead a church. And that's what the Westminster Confession had in mind when they did that. Uh, that's, we're not, we're not um, affirming that or denying it. We're just stating that that's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says regarding that. Now, uh, I've mentioned to you that one of the resources that I uh, refer to often is um, Sam Waldron's modern exposition of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And I like what he said about this. It's, it's helpful. He, he suggests that the framers of the 1689 Confession wish to avoid the two extremes of clericalism, which means that only ordained ministers may administer the ordinances, and congregationalism, that means any member of the congregation may administer the ordinances. So you can see the two ends of that. You've got one that says oh, the only people who should be doing this are, are actually clerics or those who are in the ministry, if you will. But then you have the other side that says, no, 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 really all that needs to happen is anybody in the congregation can administer the Lord's Supper. Anybody can administer baptism to anyone. So what his belief was, and I, I, tend to, I tend to lean this way personally, is that what the confession writers of the Baptist Confession of Faith were attempting to do was trying to find a middle ground between what is primarily known as the Presbyterian clericalism, which they would, they would go to that side. They would say only people who are in the ministry or lawfully ordained, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, and what the early Baptists were, which were fully congregational, which basically means we're all in this at the same level. Anybody can do it. It doesn't matter what your qualifications are. And so most take the, the, the opinion that what the confession writers were trying to do was trying to find the middle ground. Now, I think one step over that is I do truly believe, and again, since we are a Baptist confession of faith church, um, I, I don't, there's nothing in me that says that the confession writers of the Confession of Faith Baptist were trying to do anything but be faithful to the scriptures. Uh, that's my belief. And, and again, I'm not saying the Westminster is wrong. I'm just saying I think they both had in their mind's eye, we want to be faithful to the scriptures. But there is very clearly a difference between what the Westminster says is able to administer these ordinances and what the Baptists say. That who are able to uh, administer these things. Now, from what my own study has said, and I, I never stand here as an expert on everything, um, but from my own study of scriptures, I am not able to find anywhere scripturally that teaches explicitly that only, and again, we'll talk about this, that only church officers may administer the ordinances. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not principles there. It doesn't mean that there's not some things we need to think about. But I can't find a passage that says only elders or only pastors can administer the Lord's Supper or administer baptism. Okay? So all I'm saying is I can't find it to where it only says that's who has to do it. But on the other hand, we have to take, I think, the same idea principle-wise that I don't think that scriptures also teach that it can be and should be administered just by anyone. So again, I think there is a line between these to where I 
the scriptures giving us the principles based upon some of the things that they actually uh, uh, cite as these proof texts, if you will. Uh, but that's what we're looking at tonight. So we're looking at uh, really that question. Uh, who has the authority? Um, who should be? Who has the right to preside over these things? So let's deal with this, this first heading about just very directly, the administration of the ordinances. Um, who would be, based upon what Scripture teaches us, uh, who would be the most likely person qualified to administer these ordinances? Well, if you take church structure, okay, if you just look at church structure, you know that each church was to be established with elders, pastors, okay? That's the way the church is supposed to be structured. It, it's structured with headship by those elders and pastors. Of course, they're not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, but they're serving as the overseers, the bishops, and they are required to be sure that the church carries out what the, purpose, the intended purpose of what God has said. So although it doesn't say elders and pastors must, there can be a logical conclusion that says it makes the most reasonable sense biblically that it would be the elders and pastors who would carry out or administer these ordinances. But, does, but then that leaves us to ask the question, but does that exclude any other member in administering the ordinances or maybe assisting in the carrying out of those ordinances? In other words, would it be wrong if the pastors and, and elders were administering these ordinances, they were being sure they were done right, would it be wrong for a member of the congregation to assist in a, either the serving of the Lord's Supper, let's say, or to assist in a baptism? Again, we don't have scripture that says, thou shalt not do that. But based on structure, we can see that there should be led by elders, they should be led by pastors. Uh, again, so the question is, uh, should, is there a biblical command that says no? no is it, so is it clericalism all the way this side? Or is it somewhere in the middle that says there's, there is no prohibition against it, that only the elders can do it? Now, obviously, whenever the church and a local gathering of God's people... Um, the expectation is, is that elders and pastors are the ones that are supposed to lead and are supposed to be sure things are being done right. So it makes perfectly perfect biblical sense uh, based upon the structure of the church uh, that they would be the ones who would be the most likely to carry those out. Um, but for example, um, would it be biblically wrong for an elder or a pastor to call on a member of the church to pray uh, over the elements. Would that be a biblical violation? Would it be a violation for a church member to pray? Would it be a violation uh, for a church member to help distribute the elements? Uh, those are the questions that are being asked. Again, I don't see scripturally that there is necessarily a prohibition against that. Um, Again, you have uh, various uh, circumstances and situations that we could think about. Now, if we were to look at this and say, according to church structure, which, which is the more likely? That it could, should be done by anybody 
or should it be led and administered by the elders and pastors? I think the obvious answer to that is it's better if it's being done by the church officers. That's part, that's part what they're called to do. Uh, they're called not only to, to govern, but called to preach the word, to teach, to feed the church. It, it would be a logical biblical conclusion to say it makes the most biblical reason that we would say, okay, it, it's the elders that should be doing this um, or the pastors. Um, they are the ones who are been placed in the position to lead the church. Um, and they are typically, um, if the church is structured right, they are typically known as the church leaders. So it would be an expectation. Um, so if you were going to say which one is most biblically supported, that who should administer the Lord's Supper or administer baptism, I think it would most likely, we'd say the elders and pastors would line up biblically. Now, what's interesting is, is again, what the, the two verses that they cite, okay? And again, the reason that the confession writers were careful to cite scripture is because it often dealt with something that they wanted to make sure there was clarity. But if you look at Matthew 28, 19, again, this is the verses that we are familiar with. When the Great Commission was given by the Lord and given to the disciples, um, Jesus, in verse 18, came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Everywhere that the gospel was going out, uh, there was the intention that as the gospel went forth, that churches were going to be established. And as churches were established, there would be leadership placed in those churches. This was not just a rogue commission that the disciples were going on to say, okay, just go convert people and then let them be. There was always, the part of the commission was to go out and to establish these churches. So churches, we know, are told scripturally, we, we have in the Bible, a perfect pattern for what the church is supposed to look like. Like, we don't have to guess. We don't have to, to say, what should a local church look like? Because it's, it's, it's completely laid out for us in Scripture as far as what a church should look like. So when Jesus gave that commandment to the disciples, of course, we're still in that period where these churches are, are being planted. People are being converted. People are being saved. And so churches are being established. And so there is the principle here that as people were being converted, people were being baptized, people were being added to the churches, churches were being established, and leadership was being placed in those churches. That one's a little bit easier to fully see why they cited that. Now, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is one that when we first see it, um, it's not necessarily in the context of what we would think it would be. Now, it's footnoted um, or cited um, at the end of, uh, on the paragraph, according to the commission of Christ. So both Matthew 28, 19 and 1 Corinthians 4, 1 are both cited as the main reasons or the main um, text as to why they're saying what they're saying. Well, here's what 1 Corinthians 4, 1 says. Let a man so account of us 
as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have the praise of God. Now, part of the context of chapter 4 was Paul was, was, was heading off the reality of divisions in the church and divisions that could be caused and things that could cause a division. And so Paul is identifying that within each one of those churches, there are stewards, okay? There are those who have been given the responsibility to be sure that these things are being carried out faithfully. A steward is one who has been given the responsibility to carry out someone else's possession, okay? Elders and pastors, no matter what church they're a part of, are not owners of that church. It is not their ministry. It's not their church. It is the, it is the church of Jesus Christ. And every pastor elder is a steward. They are, they are called to, to, to rule and to, to make sure that it's done properly. And that there's nothing there that is, again, if there are things that may cause division, then those things are to be dealt with. So Paul makes mention of being found faithful. So the measurement or the, the, the measure of a steward um, is not according to eloquence or necessarily to their ability, but to their faithfulness. Again, so I firmly believe that what the confession writers were trying to do in our confession was they were trying to remain as faithful to the text as they could because they couldn't find where it said only the stewards can do this or only the members of the congregation can do it but that there is the principle of stewardship. And there's the principle that Paul even himself describes himself and his fellow ministers as stewards. Okay, think of a steward as a servant. A steward is one who is serving at the pleasure of another individual. They've been entrusted with the administration of a household. Um, every, uh, every called man of God uh, to a church... Is, it should be fully aware of the enormity of the responsibility that is upon the leadership of that church. If he doesn't understand the enormity of that, he probably shouldn't be in there. The, the, the responsibility to be sure that the pillar and ground of the truth, the church, is being carried out properly and its administrations and how it's done. So what have we learned just in chapter 28? Well, remember paragraph one taught us that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. We talked about that appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver. So what does that tell us? It reminds us that Christ alone possesses the authority to order the worship. He alone says this is what these churches should look like. And so he is the one that exercises the authority. So again, what are pastors and elders supposed to do? They are supposed to see to it that the will of Christ is impl implemented and carried out. 
Uh, that's why when we look at passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul was writing to Timothy, of course, who himself would be a pastor himself, um, he, Paul tells Timothy the importance of these things. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, he says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. The church is called to be a pillar and ground of the truth. It's the church's calling and obligation to hold forth truth. To make sure that truth is always at the very center of what it's doing. To confess the truth. To stand for the truth. Even when deception and heresy begins to attack at that pillar and ground. In other words, it should stand even in the face of deception and in the face of heresy. So who's been given the responsibility to carry those things out? Well, those congregations have been based, should be based upon the Scriptures, based upon Christ as the only lawgiver. And so that means that those leaders are to be sure that those things are carried out properly. So we get the idea of this administration of these ordinances. So what about uh, believer's baptism? We'll break these two down uh, in the time we have left. So if we understand that it's the Lord's will that churches are organized under the leadership of elders and pastors, whose responsibility that it is to preside over the ministry and the life of the church, again, again the confession, again, we go back to Matthew 28, 19, the commission specifically was addressed to those disciples and their understanding of the commission we see being carried out in the book of Acts. So when you look at the book of Acts, you are seeing the carrying out of the commission. Here's what it looked like as the commission goes forward. So what do we see in the book of Acts? We see baptism. We see the Lord's Supper. We see an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is dealing with the misuse of the Lord's Supper. Where he is saying there, there is a, uh, a, 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 I don't know how you even put it, there is something very wrong with the way you're observing this. He corrects them on it. And it's one of the passages that we, he then goes in and explains to them what this is supposed to be. So wherever disciples were being made, wherever churches were being, uh, being planted and established, these churches were under the leadership. Uh, even Paul makes mention in his epistles about elders being placed and pastors being placed in these churches. There's no such thing as a church that's just kind of doing its own thing. To where there's no structure to it, there's no organization there's always supposed to be somebody who's being sure that this is being carried out properly. Now, an example that we have of somebody who is not a pastor or an elder is the baptism that Philip performs on the Ethiopian eunuch. 
Uh, you know the story. It's Acts chapter number 8. And the eunuch is reading as scriptures and uh, Philip comes to him and he asks him, do you understand what you read? And the eunuch says, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? Well, he explains it to him and then they go on a little bit further and the, the eunuch says, what, what do I have to do, paraphrase, to be baptized? And we see that he tells him that he has to, he has to believe on Christ and there has to be this repentance. And yet, Upon that, he baptizing, baptizes him there right on that road. Now, the point here is, is not, okay, well, that gives us the full license to go out and just start baptizing people randomly. Okay? We, churches sometimes are people of extremes. We, we see something and we grab onto it and we say, this is the case no matter what. This was not a pattern that all of us should go out, find a person who needs to be saved, save them, and then baptize them on the spot. That's not what's being advised here. But rather, the point is, and again, and this is what we're trying to get at to find what does the Scripture say, we don't have any place in Scripture that says that the administration of baptism can only be done by an elder. Again, now is it conclusive? That's what we're trying to get at. Now, what about the administration of the Lord's Supper? Primarily, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, we won't read all of this tonight um, for the sake of the time that we have. Uh, but when you get down to verse 17, which is often when we um, observe the Lord's Supper together, when we look at this text, Paul from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 through 34, explains what the purpose of coming together for the Lord's Supper is, that there should not be divisions, talks about uh, examining yourself to be sure that you are um, able to receive of that. But when we take the Scriptures and we look at when was the Supper being administered, it was regularly, on a regular basis, Acts 2.42 tells us, that it was being celebrated on a regular basis in the early churches in Jerusalem. And especially on the Lord's Day, which we refer to as Sunday. It was when there was a gathering of God's people together. Now this is going to become really important in a minute because there's a, there is a, a brand new movement that says the Lord's Supper is just something that we do on our own now. People are buying their own communion supplies and they're getting up in the morning and they're taking communion by themselves. Now there's nowhere scripturally that says that that should be happening. This, is, this was not supposed to be something we just do on our own. This was to be done at a gathering of a church. Now, we can get into the argument about all these different parachurch organizations as well. Religious organizations that are not churches. Okay, so you could use examples like, should Christian colleges administer the ordinance of baptism or the Lord's Supper? Not according to Scripture. They, they, have, they have no authority in that matter, and it shouldn't be happening. It was all being done under the authority of a church. Okay, now we can get into the controversy of well, what about the school that's the extension ministry of the church? The school's still not doing it. The church is doing it. Okay, so what are we, what are we seeing? It's the authority of the church 
is where these ordinances are supposed to be carried out. Now again, I think of the two, the one that is the most being corrupted the most right now is the Lord's Supper. That's the one we're seeing people are kind of taking it and running with it and kind of doing their own thing. But normally, and Scripture shows this out throughout the book of Acts, it was being done on a regular basis, which is what the Lord Jesus Christ said. He said to observe these things until I come. Now, in a, does the Bible directly say how many times a year you take it? Does it say you have to do it every Sunday? Do you have to do it every other week? Do you do it every quarter? The Bible is completely silent on that. And every church has the liberty to determine what are we going to do. I don't look at a church that observes it every week and say, that's too much. But I also don't look at another church who is acting under the authority of its elders and its pastors who says, we observe the Lord's Supper once per year. They have to give an account for that. If they believe that that's correct, then that's not a place I'm going to argue about it. Okay, there is no, there is no guidance as far as that goes. But we do know that specifically, it was an ordinance of the church. Um, 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen talks about when the Corinthians, when they came together as a church, observe the Lord's Supper. So as a general biblical rule, the Lord's Supper is generally should be administered on the Lord's Day during a gathering of God's people. Now, a gathering of God's people. Um, would it be biblically okay to have a Lord's Supper service that stands alone? Sure. There would be no biblical violation to say, okay, one Sunday a month on a Sunday evening, we're just going to come together for the observance of the Lord's Supper. That's still a gathering of the church. And it's still being done under the authority of the church. It's not being done in a rogue manner. Some churches, it's just they put the Lord's Supper in the middle of a normal worship service. Some do it like we do at the end of a service where there's a, a direct connection between what the service just was and we move into another aspect of it. These are the things that biblically um, we don't, are not given commandments as to how it must be. But I do know what's clear is that the Lord's Supper was never intended to be celebrated by just one person or just a group of people on the side outside of a church. Now, there, there have been occasions, okay? There have been occasions where a church goes as a group of believers go to the bedside of a person who is in a nursing home and acting under the authority of the church, they observe the Lord's Supper together. That does happen. I don't think that's a biblical violation. It's not the normal practice. It's not what we do on a regular basis. But there are times where the Bible doesn't say you can't do that. But normally, it, the common, regular, normal observance of the Lord's Supper should be done within the corporate gathering of God's people. That's the normative basis of this. Now again, I'm not... I'm not saying this um, in any way to try to uh, offend anybody. I don't think it'll offend anybody here, but I just want you to understand um, that it's been, it it's been, has been suggested to me 
that one of the things that we should do as the Lord's Supper is just always leave the elements out so that people can just grab them when they want them. Now, I responded to that by saying, I can't, there's no biblical basis for that. That would actually, to me, would be a violation of Scripture. To where you're just taking it and you're having what now becomes, again, I, I, don't, I don't know where this terminology is coming from. I, I, this is just stuff that I hear. It's becoming one of these me and Jesus moments. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you haven't. And that's where this is born out of. Is that, hey, you know, just leave, just leave the juice and the bread out all the time and we can just go grab it when we want. The problem is, is there's no, you can't find a scriptural basis for that anywhere. You can't find where God says, observe this by yourself or just do this. This is meant to be something as the church gathers together, that we are observing it together. And as we observe it together, uh, that this is one of the beauties of the church. And, you know, some people have asked me, and, and, and pastors and elders go back and forth on this, and I, I, think, I think you folks that know me well enough know that there's this real struggle between you don't want to make something so common that people they lose the significance of what they're remembering. Now, again, that's not to say that observing it every week under the authority and the leadership of the elders and pastors, that might be perfectly fine. But every time we observe one of these ordinances, when we see somebody baptized, when we observe the Lord's Supper together, this is something that was meant to be part of the church. It's something that, remember, it's, it's gospel. It's the signs of the gospel. In a baptism, we're watching somebody who has repented of their sins. They believed in Christ, and now they are taking that step of identification, that step, that step of obedience so to use the terminology of the contemporary modern church, again, when I say contemporary modern, I don't mean just because it's new. I'm talking about contemporary modern thinking towards what the scriptures teach. There's a big difference. Some people say you're against everything contemporary. No, I'm not. I'm against modern contemporary thought that displaces what the Bible really teaches. That's where the wrong comes in. But... This emphasis on the Jesus and me movement, which is very real, that really it's just me and Jesus and that's all that really matters. Folks, listen, the beauty of the church, the church is what Jesus Christ established. And it's, it is the very foundation of what he left. Again, not being offensive, but the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. No offense to Christian universities, but that's not the church. It never was intended to be the church. No parachurch organization was meant to replace the church. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, can these other organizations proclaim and preach the truth? Yes. Can they act like the church? No. They don't have the authority to act like the church. They don't have the authority to carry out, lo and behold, what is a biblical teaching, church discipline. Again, no church wants to carry out church discipline, but you realize that's the sign of a healthy church. 
is a church that actually carries it out because it is striving for the purity of the church. Now, I've been in churches where it looks like the goal of the church was to carry out church discipline. They were looking for people to get in trouble. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about following the biblical pattern for how we handle church discipline according to Matthew 18. It even tells us how to deal with that. So when we're looking at these things, again, this is not so much about um, finding this exact day, this exact time, but we do see that the Lord's Supper, baptism, these were meant to be ordinances that were carried out by the local church. Acts 20 verse 7 talks about the church being gathered on the first day of the week to break bread. Um, Again, when Paul was speaking to the Corinthians, he was talking about the misuse of the Lord's Supper. He addressed it in the context of corporate worship. He didn't talk about it being something outside of it. He dealt with it in the idea of corporate worship. So what can we come to the conclusion of? Well, we can come to the conclusion that the gathering of God's people, the church, is the proper context for the Lord's Supper as well as baptism. In other words, it's the local church that is responsible for carrying these things out. Now, if the church is responsible for carrying out the Lord's Supper and baptism, then it, it would, should go without saying that it should follow the structure of how the church is laid out. So the most biblical answer to this would be it should be carried out by the officers of that church, the elders and the pastors. Now, let's throw in, let's just throw something in the mix. What about a church that is without a pastor and without any elders? What do they do? Does that mean that they can't observe those ordinances at all? I don't think that's the case either. I think what we lose sight of, and our church, those of you who've been around long enough know, this is something we have been, we have been praying and talking about for a lot of years. We are fully aware, fully aware, I'm fully aware, that we need plurality of elders. <laughs> I, I, you, people ask me, I'm the first one to raise my hand and say, yes, we need it. I need it. Because what I have found throughout Scripture is Scripture is very clear that this was not supposed to just be one person carrying this out. But what does the Bible say about elders and pastors? You don't just go around to church and start appointing people and say, do you want to fill a role? They have to even desire the office before they're even thought about. It's easy to look around a church like ours and we can say, look, just pick somebody. That's not biblical. They have to, they have to desire the office. But what do we pray? What are we, what are we praying for all the time? I'm constantly praying for the Lord to raise somebody up. But we're in a situation where it has not happened But we continue to pray to that end, knowing that one day this church will be able to have the plurality of elders. But it's not something we can just say, okay, let's just get this out of the way. So what about that church that goes without a pastor, an elder for years? Do they disregard the Lord's teachings on observing the Lord's Supper and observing baptism? No. Do they have to call somebody special in to do it? Well, no, that's not the actual elder or pastor of that church. So there are circumstances and there are times when, look, this is what has to happen. But generally, generally the way it should be done is under the authority of that church and being led by those who are recognized as elders and pastors in that church. 
Is it completely non-biblical for a person who's not a elder or a pastor to baptize someone? I don't believe that. And I don't think the Scriptures play that out. Again, I don't think what Philip was doing is the basis for go and do it. But I don't think that that was an illegal baptism. It's probably a bad illustration, but I don't think it was illegal. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a Bible violation. But I think that the proper way is, is that it should be done, of course, according to the, to, to, uh, the biblical structure. You may or may not know this man's name, um, but he's a, he's a man that also has a commentary written on this. And I just like what he said um, about this. His, his name is Bob Carr. He said, while there's nothing in the Bible that says that only ministers may administer the ordinances, Surely it is reasonable to believe that the baptism of new disciples and the serving of the elements of the Lord's Supper ought to be under the supervision of ministers. Um, ordinarily, they will administer the ordinances themselves. They may be, there may be unusual circumstances, however, under which they may delegate the task to other men that selected and recognized by the congregation the wording of the confession at this point provides appropriate flexibility. My stance is that's exactly what the confession writers were getting at, that there was some flexibility in this that was con in contrast to the clericalism that said, no way, no how, the only way this is done is by a full-time ordained minister. I think the confession writers of the Baptist Confession of Faith were trying to find that middle ground. So the, that's the general, that's the confession's general statement on the ordinances, all right? So um, next week we'll start coming to uh, the individual, what's actually being pictured in baptism. Um, we'll deal with those paragraphs on a, on a, on a paragraph by paragraph basis. We'll look at the uh, scripture references to those. And so what is our great desire is to be obedient, right? We want to be obedient. We want to be uh, uh, following scripture. And so we, we want to do it God's way. Um, again, ordinarily, I think scripturally, that's the way it's supposed to be carried out under the supervision of pastors and elders. And again, there could be unusual circumstances, but a church that's following it biblically, uh, that's the way it should be done. So I hope this encourages, I hope it helps you. Um, I know our studies on Wednesday night are a little bit different because they're not pure exposition, uh, but I think it's important for our church to go through our confession, and that's why we've spent years going through this. We've stopped it and, and started and stopped and started, but eventually we want to get through the entire confession um, so we know exactly uh, what the Bible says about these things and where we stand, okay? All right, well, let's go ahead and we'll finish uh, singing the hymn.